Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. Well, I feel like this morning I have about 10 pounds of truth I'm trying to put in a five-pound bag. <laughs> so bear with me. I hope you have a pen and a um, piece of paper this morning. Write these scriptures down. You're going to want to meditate on them. I know that several during the weeks have been going through those as part of their devotion. And I just believe this morning, if you'll grab hold of these truths, it's, it's working on me. And you know how you get tested? You know when you read this word and you find out the word's reading you? <laughs> uh, I had an ch- opportunity yesterday. This, this message is really about hope in the midst of trials, tribulation, it's, uh, it's really amazing to me. When you hear of 30 million people that have applied for unemployment during this virus, and the people that drive in, who would think you put a free prayer sign out front? People pull in. They, they're not even looking for food. They've come for prayer. And the number of men that broke down in tears at the tent, and the ones that are serving, the one, it's amazing, the ones that are in the tent are the ones who've been there. They can relate. And so there's something powerful about that where Paul says, that which you have been walking through the trial trip, now use it to encourage others. And so, Lord, I thank you in the midst of it. I don't think we really have a full understanding of all the potential anxieties associated with the trials we're in the midst of it. But God is going to use it all for his glory and purpose. That's why we're so excited about Pentecost Sunday. Please pray. Find an hour. Find an hour and pray. It's by his prayer. It's that faithful, persevering prayer that God would pour out his spirit. May 31st at Pentecost. This is a very, very unusual Pentecost. When you have a Passover where people are in lockdown, it's the first Passover since Moses where the the country of Israel and most of the nations of the world were in lockdown during Passover. Whether they knew it was Passover or not, we were in lockdown, in quarantine. So if that is true, and now we're in this Passover time and season looking towards Pentecost, I just have this amazing sense that God is going to pour out His blessing and revelation Well, I want to start, I've actually titled this message, this is kind of unusual, but I've titled this message, From Theory to Practice. Moving from the theory to the practical. Now, just work with me a minute. First of all, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want you to see about trials, tribulations, and struggles. Most of us don't think of Paul as one who uh, was despairing. (laughs) He wrote most of the New Testament, um, But I want you to see in 2 Corinthians what Paul went through. He knew something about this. In 2 Corinthians, let's begin in chapter 1. And I want to pick up, let's pick up in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Praise God. He comforts us in all, you might want to underline that, all of our troubles so that you can comfort others. So sometimes if you're wondering why you're going through something, it's because you're walking through something that you're going to be used to comfort others. When they're troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, what? I don't like that. The more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down, are you feeling the weight of the trouble? It's for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things that we suffer. We're confident that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort that God gives us. And then he uses an example here. Look at verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1, 8. For we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble that we went through in Asia. Here's a testimony. We were crushed, overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Wow, that's despair. When the weight is so heavy and the trouble is so much, 
there's this heavy weight of depression and sadness and discouragement. But he goes on, he says, but as a result, now here's the result of that. We stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And I was meditating on this, and I heard this statement in my spirit. This journey of faith in life is about death of self-dependence. Let him be God. The Holy Spirit was saying, this journey, the stuff you're walking through, it's about death of self-dependence. Let God be God. Well, we see the despair that Paul went through, but then look what happened here. In 2 Corinthians 4, look a couple years later, <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 8. Paul went from being crushed and overwhelmed, thinking we were going to die, despairing, discouraged. Now here's what he says. Well, we're pressed on every side. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we're pressed on every side by trouble. Are you pressed on every side by trouble? Man, that's every side. But we're not crushed. What happened? Something happened on the inside of him. We're perplexed. You worried about, you can't figure this out, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, God, I don't know what to do. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. He's not despairing anymore. We're hunted, but we've never been abandoned by God. We get knocked down. You feel like you just got gut punched? But we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in death of Christ, Jesus and the life of Jesus may also be seen. We continue, verse 13, to preach the same kind of faith the psalmist had. Verse 16, that's why we never give up. Please don't give up. Don't give up. Through, though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Our present troubles are small <clears throat> and don't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs. Do you hear that? Vastly outweighs. And this will last forever. We don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, fix your gaze on things that cannot be seen. Boy. For the things we now will soon be gone. And the things we cannot see will last forever. It reminds me, my, my grandmother Mildred, she was something, boy. Um, she lived through many, many things. She had a statement she would say to us. I'd complain, you know, a little brokenhearted, some little girl hurt my heart in middle school. And she'd say to me, cheer up, it'll only get worse. I said, Grandma, that's not helping. Here's a woman who went through divorce. Her husband left her to raise two children. She never remarried. She went through world wars. She went through the major depressions. She went through working well into her 70s, raising. She had seen some things. It just did not rattle her anymore. And she'd say, look, cheer up. This is going to get worse. I said, what does that mean? No matter what's going on, it's going to be all right. You can make it. She had such a faith in Christ and right till she died at 91. She was a faithful woman. I can't wait to see her one day. I want you to see that faith, what is faith? It's defined as the complete trust and confidence or strongly held belief or theory. Faith is the complete trust and confidence it's a strong-held belief or a theory. That's how it's defined. Well, let me make a statement that honestly just kind of, it's like, what? This is out of James chapter 2 and verse 17. You might want to write that one down and meditate on it. It says this, faith by itself is not enough. What? I thought it was just Jesus. It is. 
But James goes on, and we'll see this backed up by both Peter. We'll see it backed up by John. Faith by itself is not enough. Here's the rest. Unless it produces good deeds. That's New Living Translation, James 2.17. Here's what King James says. In James 2.17, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. So what's your point, Pastor? What, we're looking at walking through trials and tribulations, having faith, because Hebrews 13.15 takes on a whole new meaning, the sacrifice of praise. In the midst of your most difficult situations in life, can you offer a sacrifice of praise? My flesh wants to cry and be depressed. And this brother this week was, I'm going to go medicate. I'm making bad choices. I'm doing things bad on the weekend. I'm full of shame and guilt on Monday. The sacrifice of praise. I don't feel like it. This flesh wants to go do something else. The devil's lying in my ears and I'm not going to take his bait and go down this path. So when it says faith is everything, but it's not enough, what kind of faith are we talking about? Is there a different kind of faith? What was James talking about? Well, there's this couple of scriptures uh, that come to mind. Remember the centurion officer where he comes to Jesus? Here's a, this is an occupying officer of the Roman army. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, please, my servant is homesick, and I need you to pray for him. And Jesus says, I'll come with you. And he says, it's not necessary. Just say it. Just say, the, I, I'm a man under authority. I know your authority. He understood the levels of authority, and that faith, he, Jesus says he marveled. Go ahead and look at this. You can, don't turn there, but just mark it down. He says this, that this centurion had such faith. This is in Matthew 8. It says, he marveled. He says, I have not seen, Jesus said, faith like this in all of Israel. A couple of verses besides James 2.17 and James 2.14. Write this one down. James 2.14, three verses down from the one that says, faith isn't enough. He, he preludes that with by saying in James 2.14, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? What an amazing statement. There's a level of faith that if you don't act on it, if it doesn't produce works, then he goes on, John says it this way, in 1 John 2, 4, we looked at it this past Wednesday. If someone claims, this is 1 John 2, 4, this is the John in his elder years, writes 1 John, he says, if someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey the commandments, that person's a liar and is not living in the truth. There's a great deal of emphasis. You take the first five, all the five chapters of 1 John, and it is over and over again, about living and lifestyle and proof. So there's something about faith that even we know is said in the Scriptures, the devil has faith. They, know, they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but it is of no value to them. It does not produce salvation. They've already lost. They had, they had their opportunity of free will, and the war in heaven took place in Revelation 12, and they've been thrown out, and now they walk in iniquity, and their character has been so corrupted, God has given up on them. And there's a warning there. Jesus also went on. He said in Matthew 7, 16, you'll be able to identify those by their fruit. He deals with false prophets there, and he says in Matthew 7, 16, you can ID a person by the way they act, the fruit that they walk in. There's a lot of talk about faith and belief, but let's look at the lifestyle. He then says that there's this impossibility of being able to be born again and still walking in a lifestyle 
that doesn't produce this kind of faith fruit. 1 John 3 and verse 9, 1 John 3, 9, those who have been born again into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them, so they can't go on sinning. They are the children of God. I mean, that, that is wild. That, now, we know there's no perfection. You know, even Paul said, I, I don't claim that I've arrived. I just keep pressing towards the mark of the high call. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, those who say they live in God should they live their lives as Jesus did. Boy, I'm getting convicted. So the question is, if this lifestyle and practice is what proves that the faith, the measure, there's an interesting statement in that James 2, 14, it says, can that kind of faith save anyone? So obviously there are different levels of faith. Well, how does faith come? We know from Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So, and he goes on and says, well, how can they hear unless someone is sent? And there's a difference between listening and hearing. <laughs> if you're married, men probably can relate to this. My wife will ask me, are you listening? I'm listening, but I may not be hearing. <laughs> yeah. And she says, I need your attention right now. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So there's a difference between listening and hearing. Well, I'm multitasking. No, you're not. You haven't given me your undivided attention. The newspaper, the Fox News, and I'm, she, the other night, I know she was frustrated. She's trying to show me something that she wants to do with the house, and, the, and I'm like, I'm trying to listen to Fox News, and, and I'm doing Man, I am frustrated about both. I'm not getting either one of them. So there's a difference about hearing the Word of God that produces a faith, and faith can grow. So if faith is going to grow, you got to be in the Word of God, and you got to hear the Word of God. That's why we took so much time over the last nine weeks in Breaking Free to take every one of these major books, and we took a whole week, and we dove deep. And, and I, man, I have, I'm not exaggerating, I have about 60 pages of line by line, I went through each one, and man, it was like, whoa. I encourage you to dig and dive deep. This Word cannot return void. It's full of living power. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is full of living power, and it'll cut between the soul and the spirit realm. It'll equip you. It'll start reading you, and your spirit man will go, oh, oh, ah. But it's all for the purposes of hearing the Word. So, if we have this faith in us that produces this tension in Scripture between grace and works, how, how does, it's almost like, what? Think of it this way. Um, you're driving down the highway of holiness. You're on the journey. There's boulders in the way, right? There's this highway of holiness that you're driving down. One side of the guardrail is grace that saves. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace have you been saved through faith, through faith, through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone wants to brag about what they're doing. No. But then go on and read. It says, you are His workmanship. Verse 10, Ephesians 2, 10. You are His masterpiece, His workmanship. The chiseling of that sculpture work that he's doing on with the hammer and the sparks every day, right? That he's working. He who began to work in you, Philippians 1, 6, is performing it. But you got to do your performance. You got to do it. You got to work. Not to get saved. That's already in. But once you're in, there better be signs following. Now here, so here's the highway holiness. Grace on one guardrail. Sometimes we bang into, oh, God, I need your grace. And then over here we're doing works, right? Think of it this way. When I go out of town driving up to Burgaw where my daughter and son-in-law and gang live, and there's that sign that says something like 3,200 miles to California. <laughs> I'm on I-40, 3,000-something miles to get to California. There's a lot of roads and a lot of turnoffs. Well, just think of that as your life. There's a, there's a sign that says 3,000 miles towards the end of your life is a highway of holiness and a highway to death. Which road are you on right now? Which one are you going? Now, 
That road on the way down 3,000-something miles, rainstorms, icy roads, flat tires, blown transmissions, oil changes and tune-ups and tired of driving, got to stop. Drivers who cut you off and annoy the heck out of you. Toll booths, potholes, speed bumps, speed traps, speeding tickets. Are you cranky on the journey or are you doing just fine? <laughs> Let me be transparent for a minute. Man, we got our work done, got the grass cut yesterday. It was a beautiful day. We've been waiting for the window. I've got my spent a lot of money getting my little boat tuned up and that had been multiple years. So I got all set. I'm waiting for the great day. It's like, honey, we got to go out on the waterway today. High tide at four o'clock ready. We pull down to Trails End to launch our boat. There's not one parking spot. I'm, I'm not kidding. Everybody had the same darn idea and it was like crazy. In fact, an hour and 15 minutes inching towards the launch site. An hour and 15 minutes. Now, there was a time my wife got out of the car. Oh, this will be just, she's just like happy to be alive and like got the dog and goes out on the dock and I'm in the car and inch by inch. And finally, I'm, I'm feeling that. I said, you know what? I'm going to offer a sacrifice of praise right now. I turned on 89.7, 90.5, and I, all of a sudden under the trees there, the wind's blowing, worship music's happening. Whoosh. Man, the Holy Ghost came in the car. I'm like, this is a whole lot better on the journey. <laughs> That's a choice. It's a choice. And you know what I was amazed that my wife even said the same thing is an hour and 15 minutes to get to the place of launching, then to try to find a place to park. I had to bounce over these things, spikes sticking out of the parking lot. <laughs> like I got there and guys like, ha, ah, let's get there. Two hours on the waterway, running down there, having it just full speed ahead. Wow, man, Corona, take that right? Pull back an hour to get out. <laughs> Tie the boat up on the dock and get in there and get online and an hour. But you know what? There were no cranky people in the whole place. I, everybody was like, it's just so good to be out. It doesn't matter. We're sitting in this thing. It's like, man, it was, I've never seen it like that. Good Lord. Next time I'll, I'll launch at Carolina Beach. But anyway, I want you to see it's a choice. You have a choice. Stop and say, God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. I've tried this whole sadness, depression, and crying. It, it, it's, it's overrated. It just is. You make everybody else miserable in the process, right? So let's, let's look at this whole journey that we're on, the tension between grace and works. I like the concept that Jesus talks about. He says in Matthew 7, 14, narrow is the door, narrow is the gate. You can enter God's kingdom only through, this is Matthew 7, 14, you can, Jesus quote, red letter, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The gateway to life is very narrow. And the road is very difficult, and only a few ever find it. Boy, that ought to humble us right there. It's real narrow. I love the picture. Well, it was a picture. It went somewhere. The one that's over there that uh, deals with the, the fiery gate, it's narrow. I want us to see that Jesus said, he's the gate. So John 10, 9 says, Jesus is the gate, and there's no other way by which my men might be saved. So there's not all these different ways up the mountain. There's one way up the mountain. It's Jesus and him alone. But once that grace has been settled by faith, he gives us this measure of faith. We now have come to that faith of revelation. There needs to be a growing faith that produces works. And if there are not works in your life that are being seen, then you need to question whether that has been a saving faith. You cannot miss it. Look at John, 1 John. Read through 1 John. Read through Colossians. Read through Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Man, it, it, he doesn't stutter over these things. 
There needs to be produced works in your life that validate that the measure of faith you have has been sufficient to produce it. If not, you need to question your salvation. And I know I'm talking to all of us. There's this journey. He's doing the work. First Philippians says that. He's producing this work, but you have to do your part. What does it mean when he says in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, that the bride has made herself ready by the good deeds that she's done. He's coming back, right? The rider on the white horse is coming back. One day that sky is going to split wide open and everybody who's been a naysayer is going to be shocked and every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. That is beyond question. That is true. Scripture is full. But he says, the bride's made herself ready. The garments she will wear are the deeds that she's done, the good deeds. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. So life practices. So let me ask this. How are you doing in your practice? How am I doing in the practice? Let me read this paragraph that the Lord just kind of downloaded with me this week as I was meditating on this. If the faith journey in life is about the death of self-dependence and letting him be God, there's a big difference between the study of theoretical knowledge and practical application. Just as my dreams, your dreams, your expectations, they don't always align. The reality and the vision, they're out of sync. All the thoughts and dreams I had about a particular situation, they didn't come about. So what do you do with that? Do you go off and medicate and give up, lose your faith? As Romans 1 warns, God abandons them and gives up on them? That's the iniquitous characters that have just given up and hate God. When life circumstances don't make sense, this is both true physically and spiritually in every area of life. Faith or theory and practical application. Let me give a couple examples. Um, if you've ever, well, you can remember if, you're a dri if you've got a driver's license, when you were studying the driver's manual, or better yet, when you had a teenager turn 15, <laughs> And they are now learning to drive. In fact, you're in the passenger seat and they're driving, right? Well, when they start, you, they're reading all the theory, road signs, ro laws and rules associated with driving, how to start the car, what's the brake. That's a whole lot different than driving with a teenager in Atlanta on a four or five lane highway at 70 miles an hour, changing four lanes to get off the highway. The theory and the practice are two different things. You know, we say practice makes perfect. Well, there's something true in that as you continue. Why do athletes continue to practice? Why do we do what we do? The, the, because practice, what, these musicians, this, the, when they play, they practice, they practice. Why? Because there's something, you can read all the theory about music, but there's something about practical application and the skill that goes with practice. So is it with faith. Think of it this way. The heart surgeon who goes to medical school, right? And they read about the heart. They study the heart. But then you do open heart surgery. Would you like to have a medical student who got a 4.0? Or would you like to have a surgeon who's done this for about 30 years? Hello? Right? So there's something about faith and theory versus practice. When I was in the submarine service, when I was first qualifying, I went to nuclear power school. The first six months, they send you to nuclear power school, sitting in a classroom six months, learning about reactors and criticality and supercriticality and feed stations and the generation of power and, and uh, how a submarine is submerged. And so we're studying all that stuff. But I remember then they take us to the prototype site, which is basically it's a submarine on land that has no missile compartment because we're not going to launch missiles, but it's all the same. The good news is you can drive this thing on land and you don't have to worry about sinking, right? So and we've got all these students that come and they put us on the practical side. They go from the classroom, okay, Mr. Hauser, let's have you stand reactor operator watch. Woohoo! Sitting there, pulling rods, watching the meter, 
when the reactor goes critical and you're like, okay, and you got an instructor standing by right next to you saying, okay, that's good, Mr. Howell. That's the way, you, yeah, that's good. Okay, now once this happens, you got to do this. There's a difference when you finish all those qualifications on the feed station and reactor operator watch and, and the mechanical operator's watch. You put all those pieces together and you've, you've qualified on the watch. And I remember the first way you qualify as an engineering officer of the watch who's now in charge of the entire propulsion system your qualifying watch, they run all sorts of drills and activities around you. Surprise drills, emergency. Sitting in the, engine, in the uh, control room at that point, the engineering officer of the watch, my watch to qualify, and they run a reactor scram drill with all the power goes out. There's a whole lot of difference between reading about it and sitting there when it goes dark and everything's there and all of a sudden it gets hot and you got to do something to recover. Because if it doesn't happen right, the submarine sinks and everybody's lost. So there's a difference in the practical versus theory, and so it is in the theological walk of life. How are you doing when your reactor has scrammed? When everything in life is not making sense anymore, are you going to pack it in and leave and get angry at God? You're going to go medicate your pain, or are you going to offer a sacrifice of praise? That's the choice. And we all got it. And Paul knew it. That's why I read Corinthians. He says, we thought we'd die. We didn't think we were going to survive. 2 Corinthians 1. But then we find in 2 Corinthians 4, the rest of the story. Well, we're still perplexed and we're still crushed, but we're not overwhelmed anymore because we have learned something about faith. That's why Grandma said, relax. It's just going to get worse. You'll make it. You're going to be all right, grandson. You're going to make it. But grandma, no, you're going to make it. From a woman who had the scars of life and the faith in Christ to walk this thing out right up until the day she died. What a practice of faith. Well, how about this? When, when I was 22 and Ginny was 20, I've been married to be 47 years in June, right? In love, everything's wonderful. Can't wait to get married. We do our marriage vows, right? On our honeymoon, the first day in the Bahamas on uh, Bermuda, I get a sunburn that you can't even touch me. <laughs> what a honeymoon, praise God. Not exactly what I had envisioned, right? Or how about this? We want to have children. Let's go to Lamaze classes. Keep your focus there. <laughs> Good luck with that. When it starts happening, the theory and the practice, right? Or how about teenagers? Where's that written? How to raise teenagers. Good Lord in the morning. Sneaking out at night. Oh my gosh, Lord, that wasn't in the book. That wasn't the plan. This is where perseverance and faith. Well, I want to turn and we're going to read you something out of Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, Paul writes to the church at Colossus. This is about the reality of heaven. Do you really, do I really set my sights? There's a reality that supersedes this natural reality. Everything you see was created by the supernatural world of Christ. He created all things. We see that in Colossians 1. But here's what he says in Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, where are you, where are you looking, on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven. So set your sights and think about it. Not on the things of the earth. Well, I got to pay the bills. I got I got the, yeah. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you're going to share in His glory. So once you've set your sights on that reality, now here's what you do with your flesh. Verse 5, put it to death. The sinful, earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Here's where it gets real. Impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. i got to hold on to my stuff because who knows? No, don't be greedy as a person or an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. 
because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world. But now it's time to get rid of what? Anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other. Strip off the old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Put on some new nature and be renewed. See, that's what I did yesterday. It's like I'm about ready to get cranky there waiting on the boat line. And I had a, the Holy Spirit said, so you want to preach this or you want to live it? I'd like to live it, God. Okay, make a choice. Turn on that worship music and just let me fill. Man, that line went really smooth after that. Praise the living God. This is stripping off the old. Oh, that I would do that every day. Put on your new nature. Be renewed and learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. There's Jesus. Since, but it's, you, can't, you can't say it's just Jesus. There's obviously works and choices and putting to death and making these. Since God chose you, verse 12, to be a holy people, he loves you. You must, you must Clothe yourselves in tender mercy, Ooh. kindness, humility, gentleness, ah, patience, ah. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive one another that offends you. Man, Jesus. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. There's a lot of musts in here. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Wow. Well, another one that's convicting, why don't you look at Philippians 2.12. In Philippians 2, he writes to the church at Philippi. Philippians 2.12. He says, shine brightly for Christ. That's the title of my scripture there in verse 12. Philippians 2.12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. Kind of when Paul was watching, right? Now that I'm away, it's even more important. Look at this scripture. This one is like perplexing. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reference and fear. Wait, let me go and read the King James. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wait a minute, I, I, I thought I was like saved. Or, you, you are, by grace you've been saved through faith. Now, work out that, your own personal salvation. Work it out. Work hard. I thought in Hebrews 4 it says, enter his rest. It says, work hard to enter his rest. <laughs> that like, what? We have to enter that rest, but there's something about working out this gifted salvation with reverential honor and fear and trembling before God. Because we know that fear of the Lord, reverential honor of God is the beginning of all wisdom. One day, he's going to show up. When we least expect it is what the scripture says. Jesus told us in three different scriptures. He's coming back. Watch out. Be ready. He's coming. When you least expect it, just like in the days of Noah, he'll suddenly appear. Keep ready. Watch out. He says it in Matthew 25, Matthew 24, Luke 13, Mark 11. I mean, Jesus is saying it over and over again. So one day when he says, I gave you the word and I asked you to learn the word because faith will come by hearing. If you don't study the word, you don't know the word, you don't walk in the word, you will be held accountable to the word because I gave it to you. It's kind of like when the police officer pulls you over and says, when I studied the driver's manual, I didn't know I had to follow the speed limits. See how that works. No, you got the word. You got the rules. You know the rules of this road. It's grace and it's works. It's grace and it's work. Let me see your grace operating in faith through works. That's what he's saying over and over. It's like we're so fixated these days on grace, grace, grace. Everybody's going. Nobody can die. There are whole denominations saying God would never send anybody to hell. Really? What book are you reading? It's not this one.
We're called to live a holy life. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter. Now let's look at Peter. You know, there's something about when two of the great apostles, Peter and John, who are, they, they say in scriptures, it's near the end of my life. The Lord has told me I'm about ready to. And they write to the church, us, their eyewitness testimonies of what they thought was really important. When that, you want to pay attention. When someone's on their deathbed, there's no more fluff and fear. When I've prayed with people who are about to go, I remember someone saying, I wish I had lived differently. I wish I had done this. I, there's no more wishing at this point. Let's ask God for forgiveness and let's thank him and trust him just like the thief on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 13, listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 13. It's titled, The Call to Holy Living. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Whoa. Think clearly. How clear are your thoughts right now? And are you exercising self-control is a question I have to ask myself. Look forward into the gracious, gracious salvation that will come to you when Christ is revealed to the whole world. So, you must, here we go again. It's not like, when you feel like it. You must live as God's obedient children. Now, here's the warning. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Boy, that's convicting. I have people that walk with God, they know the truth, and then they, you know, something happens, they get derailed by stuff that's really a gut punch, and then they go back to their own ways. Some have never recovered. Don't slip back, verse 14, to your old ways. You didn't know better then. This is the old this is the old man. You didn't know better then, but verse 15. But now you must, here we go again, you must be holy in everything you do. Boy, that convicts me like good Lord. Please help me. Do you always have holy thoughts? Do I? Is your attitude always in a good place? <laughs> help me, Jesus. Man, I, I was praying with one of the widows this week when George Hansen's went to be with the Lord. I knew George, knew the Lord. And Mary, they've been married 28 years. You know what Mary said to me? So I was trying to comfort her. She said, do you know that George never once raised his voice to me in 28 years of marriage? I said, oh, Lord God. Mary, I wish I could say that. Convicted. You must be holy in everything you do. Why? Because he chose you to be holy. Verse 16, for the scripture says you must. Here we go again. Why these? You must be holy as I am holy. And remember, the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. You must be live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in this land. Man, we need a good dose of reverential fear. What would happen if tonight we knew without a shadow of a doubt, I know you can't put it, but we knew that he's coming back. That sky is going to split wide open tonight. What do you think everybody who believes in Christ would be doing? Maybe even those who don't believe in Christ would be doing. What we're saying is, no, no, no. You ought to be living that way every day. Help us, God. That holy reverential fear while you're on earth as foreigners. Verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you've placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the, tr when you obeyed the truth, when you obeyed the truth, when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other 
as brothers and sisters and love each other deeply with all your heart. For you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. People are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And the Word of, is the good news that we preached. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, get rid of all your evil behavior. Be done with all the deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech. Like newborn babes, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you'll grow into the full experience of salvation. Wow. Grow into the full experience of your salvation. Boy, are you getting convicted like I am? Well, let's look at where Paul said, Peter said just before he went. Look at Peter, 1 Peter 4 and verse 1. First Peter 4.1, since Christ phys suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had, ready to suffer too. None of us want that. For you have suffered physically for Christ, you've finished your sin. Something about physically suffering that you now are able, there's an enablement. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desire, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough of the past evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality, their lust, their feasting, drunkenness, wild parties, terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of the wild and destructive things that they do. So they'll slander you. They'll remember that they're going to have to face God who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. This is the good news. There's something about this eyewitness account when you look at what Peter goes through. If you turn to 2 Peter in verse 1. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1 Chapter 1, verse 12. Let's look at this eyewitness account. I want you to say, Peter knows at this point that he's about to be martyred. Nero has placed the sentence. It's the same day. The historians tell us that Paul was beheaded and Peter, the fulfilled prophecy Jesus gave him many years before that he would be taken where he didn't want to go. And we know that Peter chose to be crucified upside down. God had given him this warning, and he, see, he says it here in his last writing. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and you're standing firm in the truth that you've been taught. In other words, he's reiterating what he said many, many times. Verse 13, it's only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live for our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I'll work hard to make sure you always remember the things after I'm gone. Verse 16. This is powerful. We're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the eyewitness. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have been greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. 
Above all, you must realize no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, and spoke from God. Did you get it? Peter's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are there. Moses and Elijah show up. The cloud's there. The Father declares Jesus' identity. Peter says, I saw it. I heard it. I just want you to know it's true. It's real. I was an eyewitness. He's, it happened. He's coming back. Well, take a look at 1 John. And I was really meditating on this. 1 John chapter 1. Here's, this is amazing. We know that 60 years after the death of Christ, John is the only one. It's now 60 years. So how many generations at that time, the lifespan? This is probably a second, maybe the start of the third generation of the church. And the, the elder statesman, many say he wrote this from Ephesus around 90 A.D. Some say he might have been in prison at the Isle of Patmos. But he dies a few years after he writes this, and he writes in chapter 1 of 1 John, we proclaim to you, verse 1, we proclaim to you that the one who existed from the beginning, whom we, now if you count the number of times he said, we heard, we saw, we handled. This is an eyewitness. He was there. Whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Those who is life itself was revealed to us. The one who is the revealed life, revealed to us. We've seen him. There it is, number three. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is who he is, his eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen, number four, and heard, number two, so that you may have, why? Fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father, the Son. We're writing to you that you may have fully shared in joy. That eyewitness account by John, he says, look, I saw him. You can tell me this is not theory anymore. This theory or faith walk, there's something about the reality of the living, born again, raised Christ from the dead who lives in our heart. There's a level and a measure of faith. Faith comes by hearing. Get in the Word. Meditate on it. Make it real. Get down to that place and then make a choice. When you offer the sacrifice of praise in the midst of when it doesn't make sense and it hurts and all I want to do is run, hide, medicate, pull the covers up, no. You violate that spirit of depression, despair, shame, abandonment, worry, anxiety. Get, man, what does that do when it's so overwhelming as Paul shares out of Corinthians there? Perplexed, we thought we would die, overwhelmed, crushed. We learned to persevere. Cheer up. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> That's what Jesus said, Matthew 24. You think this is bad when the birth pains are coming? This is just the birth pains. When this thing goes on, gonna, the love of many is going to grow cold. The plagues, the viruses, the earthquakes, the th it's going to get worse. That's why we got to be grounded in faith and realize, cheer up, it's only going to get worse. But the end of this thing, ah, we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of all my enemies. God, I pray that this reality strikes where we are as a people of God. We're called to holy living. So I have some questions as we draw to a close here. Is what you and I believe provable by evidence? Is it provable? Can you show the skeptic by your life that what you believe is what you do? How's your fruit? I'm asking myself that. 
And one that's really spooky, you pray for me, because it says those who teach ought not to teach because they, bear, they take a different test. So it's great to preach this nice word and, you know, amen, pastor. Pray for me. I just want to keep walking in that place. Second question is, is my obedience to the word clear even when I'm tested? The tests and trials you're going through right now, can you grab hold of that word and stand in it even when you don't feel like it? What I was explaining to this brother who was really struggling, I said it was a lot of circumstances. I said, look, happiness is dependent upon circumstance, but joy is dependent upon faith in God. Joy is different than happiness. The circumstances, they really may be awful. But we're going to walk in that place. Third question is, are you pressing in on Christ and forgetting the past and holding on to the progress that you've already made? Philippians 3.12. Let me, let me turn there for a minute. In Philippians 3.12, pressing on and holding on to that which you've already attained. Don't lose, this is, a, this is an encouragement not to lose ground. Philippi, because you can. In these times and troubles, you can lose a lot of ground. I was warning this brother, I said, look, if you open the door to addiction and drunkenness and partying, there is a real danger that this thing ends up, because sin will take you where you don't want to go, and sin will make you pay than you want more than you want to pay, and sin, sin will make you stay longer than you want to stay. That doorway that leads to death down that path is very destructive, especially if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So Philippians 3.12, Paul warns the church at Philippi. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, me either, or that I've already achieved and reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize through which Christ has called us. Let me pray for you and me. Lord, right now, Lord, I pray that Holy Spirit, you have brought truth to our ears, that we've heard the truth that will set us free. So if there's anyone here today, that scripture, I wanted to end there because it doesn't matter what you did in the past. It matters with what you're going to do now. If you let guilt and shame and all the past heap up that heaviness, that condemnation, you can be your own worst enemy. Romans 8 says in verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you'll confess your sin to him, he is faithful to forgive you from all unrighteousness. So why don't you start right now? I'm putting aside all that mess, that stuff. I'm putting it aside. I'm not going to meditate on it. I'm not going to focus on it. Even if people bring up your past, well, I got a record. I got this. I got, yep, that's the old, that's the old man. I'm a new man in Christ. I put aside all these things and I no longer am there. I'm going to press towards the mark of the high calling in Christ, making right choices, living for Him. So why don't you rededicate your life right now in the name of Jesus. Just repent. Tell Him what you're sorry for. Let your mouth hear, your ears hear what your mouth says, that confession of faith. Forgive me, God. Maybe you need to get born again. This is your first time. Surrender. It's that place of I give up. For God so loved the world, he gave himself, his son for us, that we might have eternal life. All who believe in Christ shall live forever. But it has to be accomplished in the narrow gate, the way that leads to life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me, the gateway Jesus. The narrow way, broad is the way that leads to death and destruction. God, I pray that no one listening to the sound of my voice 
would be lost. Lord, they would open their hearts to receive this truth. And now, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, in the midst of salvation and rededication, Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, the greatest of the gifts of salvation is when the Father gives to you the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, that comes when you're born again. But he said, if an evil father can give good gifts, how much more would the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11. So, Father, we're asking now that you'd release the Holy Spirit to all those listening by my voice right now, that you would baptize them with fresh fire, fresh revelation, fresh unction from God, fresh empowerment. God, they would set aside and not be beat up by the past, and, Lord, they would now see this is the day of salvation. This is the day. Now walk in it. God, I ask that you'd release that joy of the Lord, which is strength. As we offer now the sacrifice of praise in the midst of all these trials and tribulations, and we thank you, Lord, that we now focus our attention on the end of this journey. You are God, and there is no other, and we are yours, the children who love you. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you.